This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Dr. David Brenner. I'm the Vice Chancellor of Health Sciences, and I want to welcome you to our third health talk and the first one to discuss mental health during the coronavirus epidemic. Thank you all for joining us. I want to emphasize to start, though, that um, UC San Diego Health is leading in um, coronavirus testing, and we are working very hard to make our hospitals and facilities safe. So please do not delay if you need health care. The hospitals and the clinics are a safe place for you to uh, get your care. We are also continuing to perform research on um, coronavirus, and, um, and we're caring for um, the region's uh, most um, complicated patients. They're referred from all over um, Southern California for care at UC San Diego. I know this is a highly stressful time navigating um, the events of the day, the COVID-19 pandemic, on top of um, upheavals about disparities of race. And um, this is maybe a good time to reflect about um, the role of mental health and psychiatry in the pandemic and in our daily life. As many of you know, um, UC San Diego um, has a department of psychiatry that continually leads one of the top research psychiatry departments in the United States. And um, tonight, I'm really pleased um, to offer some insights from um, some key thought leaders in our um, department. And I'm especially thrilled to introduce you for the first time. I think the first official act is our next chair of psychiatry, Dr. Jeff Zakalakis. Um, Jeff is um, from the um, University of Toronto, where he serves as Chief of the General Adult Psychiatry and Health Systems Division, is co-director of the um, Timurti Center for Therapeutic Brain Interventions in the Campbell Family Mental uh, Health Research Institute at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. We selected him um, after a competitive international search to be our next chair. I always tell everyone that they're always our first choice. But in this case, it's really true. Jeff really was our first choice, and we were so lucky to have him join us and to help lead um, psychiatry at UC San Diego. Jeff is a um, leader, he's a clinical psychiatrist, and he's an innovator in new modalities for treating conditions like treatment-resistant depression. So Jeff, thanks for joining us. He officially starts his chair August 1st, and he's off to a great start. Jeff, it's all yours. Thank you, Dr. Bradner. It's it's really a, an honor and a pleasure um, to participate in today's webinar. I really appreciate the the time um, that that you've given me to to speak uh, to to the participants today. I want to thank everyone for for joining. This is a very difficult time for all of us. We have we're we're dealing with issues of of uh, considerable civil unrest. We're dealing with issues of race and ethnicity. And, and, and discrimination around sexual orientation. And, and it is a challenge. It's a challenging time and, and, and a challenging time, particularly since all of that is, is overshadowed, it seems like these days, um, by, by the COVID pandemic. And, and the idea that, that people would still, despite all the difficulties that we're experiencing, uh, attend uh, today's webinar, webinar um, reminds me of how committed the participants are and how committed you all are to listening about mental health and, and specifically mental health in, um, in the Department of Psychiatry um, for the University of California, San Diego. There's a lot that UCSD Psychiatry does in relation to, in relation to mental health. Um, perhaps some of the most important components that it serves is, is um, being able to bring outstanding and innovative research to um, the mental health um, to, to the global mental health problem and, and be able to bring on board innovative um, breakthrough treatments as well as, 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 well as a very um, thoughtful and careful understanding of the complexities of the brain and understanding specifically how the brain um, is impacted by mental illness and, and using um, our understanding of the brain to be able to deliver um, both ways of better understanding mental illness, but also ways of of understanding how the brain responds in relation to treatments and thereby allowing us to, to develop uh, new and innovative treatments, treatments that will be groundbreaking. And, and I'm certainly bringing that contribution as well. 
I'm thrilled to be to be speaking to you today as as the new um, chair elect for the Department of Psychiatry. I'm uh, I'm from Toronto. I was was born and raised in Toronto and trained um, in psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and was recently selected to to lead the Department of Psychiatry in San Diego. And one of the reasons I decided to come to the department was was really because of the the incredible caliber of scientists, the incredible caliber that the science that's being produced by the same scientists and and really the impact that the department of psychiatry has at a world stage this is a this is a group that is 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 really second to none in terms of the quality and impact um, that of, of the of the research that's being provided and also the training environment the people that are being trained um, the the quality of the of the uh, trainees that are that are at UCSD and 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 those trainees then um, will move on to have tremendous impact. And, and for example, even when I heard myself about, about um, folks in the Department of Psychiatry at UCSD, when I was first training, I realized that they were moving on to, to, to gain um, international reputation, either within the department or, or at their own um, new institutions. And so being able to join such a prominent department was, was very exciting for me. Um, we are, are at a very difficult time. Uh, a very difficult time nationally um, because the 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 field of psychiatry is is challenged with developing new and innovative treatments. And what I what I expect to bring to UCSD psychiatry is some of those new innovative treatments. We are we are developing in ways that that are really innovative and and driving down depression, uh, particularly when when conventional treatments don't work treating effectively treating suicidality and treating suicidality in our most difficult to treat patients and, and being mindful of of how effectively these when these treatments are made available how how effectively they work and the impact that they can have um, we today we are are um, are joined by several of these of these very prominent faculty faculty that will tell you about about uh, treatment of depression faculty that will tell you about about how we need to better understand the brain to make an impact on severe mental illness and also faculty that will tell you about youth mental health uh, and the struggles that youth experience in this day and age and, and what we can do to, to to help restore confidence and faith that, that we have a system that works for for um, young adults who are struggling with depression I, I, I'm sure, like me, you, uh, you look forward to hearing some of these talks, uh, and, and I thank each and every one of the speakers, and also thank you for participating. And finally, I again want to thank Dr. Brenner for, for inviting us here today and, and to, to, to be made available to, uh, to participate in today's discussion. Thank you. Jeff, um, thank you so much. We're so honored that you're joining us. It's going to be a fantastic adventure together. Um, Many of you know that the um, physicians at Rady Children's Hospital are um, UC San Diego um, faculty. Dr. Desiree Shapiro is an attending physician in the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Services Unit, the Crisis Stabilization Unit, and the Emergency Department at Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Shapiro is on the front lines of the ramifications of the COVID pandemic on children's mental health. She's Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and director of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program in the Department um, of, our, of our Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Shapiro, thank you. Hello, everyone. I am honored to be speaking with you today about how we can support our children during this challenging time. We will review what youth and families are facing, how we can respond, and foster resilience. There is a lot going on right now. Our children are trying to make sense of it all. They are facing a disruption of routine, overwhelmed parents, inability to play with their friends, see their teachers or coaches, hug their grandparents, or go to familiar places like the library or that special slide on the playground. On top of all of this, people are wearing gloves and masks, staying away from one another. And it's complicated to put together, so children need our help. And while we are all impacted by this pandemic, there are disparities and certain families are more vulnerable. Not all homes are safe, not all families have resources like stable internet or computers to facilitate online learning. There are parents on the front lines, parents who are sick and others who are unemployed. On top of all of this, racial inequalities can magnify the stress from COVID. We need to be thinking about community mental health. Throughout all of this, it's developmentally essential for our young children to know that people are helping. 
that people are working hard to make things better. Mr. Rogers said it best, look for the helpers. What might you see in your children during this pandemic? Well, there's not one response as there are many different expressions of distress or ways to cope. Children may be experiencing a whirlwind of emotions and our jobs as adults and caretakers are to hold these emotions and make sure they feel safe. Letting them know it is okay to feel scared, worried, sad, or even happy and silly. And maybe all of these things at the same time or right after one another. Don't be surprised if your child is irritable, angry, frustrated, or bored. Children may be quiet or cling on to their parents more. Younger children may complain of stomach aches or headaches and have a change in their sleep or appetite. They may have difficulty concentrating or engaging in school. Children are grieving the loss of those things that were previously soothing and nourishing to them. What can we do as parents, as caregivers? Once we start from a place of kindness towards ourselves, we can respond to our children in a supportive way, listening to their concerns and giving them extra love and attention and validating whatever they're feeling. Here are some practical tips. Use clear language. Ask your child what they know and what they want to know. This may come up during play or at bedtime. Follow your child's lead and provide reassurance. Limit the news. Children can be easily overwhelmed and frightened by the news. Sesame Street has hosted town halls with questions from kids and those are great. Provide routine. Knowing what to expect is soothing and reassuring for all of us. Don't forget to make sure that they're moving their bodies, sleep, sleeping well, eating well, drinking enough water. Implement and talk about boundaries. There should be family time, play time, and alone time too. It's okay to let your children safely play and create their own games. Talk about your family as a unit and how you can all work together. No matter how small, everyone has a role in helping and this could extend outside of the home by making calls, doing chalk art, or sending cards. And finally, let's use this opportunity to model emotional regulation. Feelings can be overwhelming, but we can practice managing these emotions and watching them pass. Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh said that when a boat was faced with storm or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. How do we calm and center ourselves? How do we create those contagious environments of calm rather than ones of panic and stress? One idea is self-compassion and compassion. Compassion for ourselves, for our children, for our families and communities. Research shows that being kind to ourselves can enhance well-being, resilience, and productivity. Self-compassion can be learned. And this is exciting to me when thinking about what can be done in schools and in our homes. Compassion is being gentle with yourself and others. On a hard day of parenting and working, saying to yourself, I'm doing the best that I can in this moment. And let's extend this compassion to our communities. The more we can teach children our global interconnectedness, the better. This will build empathy and resilience and is linked to developing meaning and purpose. We used to think that our genes were set in stone. Epigenetics tells us that experiences children have early in life and the environments in which they have them in shape their developing brain architecture. Adverse childhood experiences lead to negative health outcomes. Positive childhood experiences are protective, love, good relationships, safety. What potential? Right now is an invitation for innovation. Children will benefit from their communities and schools prioritizing high quality social and emotional support. Let's create positive childhood experiences and see what happens in our world. When should families seek out mental health support? Please reach out for support if what you are seeing is interfering with play or learning, or if your child's distress is persisting, if there are comments about death or self-harm, or if usual coping or self-soothing is not helping. If there's a concern, it's best to just call and ask. Ask a trusted pediatrician, school counselors, a mental health professional, UC San Diego and Radiate Children's Hospital have services ranging from inpatient to outpatient care. Radies has a pediatric behavioral health urgent care and a pediatric psychiatry emergency room. Now we have a worldwide shortage of child and adolescent psychiatrists. There are approximately 8,300 practicing ones in the United States and over 15 million youth in need of our special expertise. UC San Diego, partnering with Radiate Children's Hospital has an outstanding fellowship that trains the next generation of child and adolescent psychiatrists. 
We are constantly looking at innovative ways to meet the needs of our communities. How can we recruit creative, compassionate, competent, and inclusive doctors to make up our workforce? A workforce that reflects the community that it serves. As pediatric psychiatrists, we will always be there to catch youth and families in crisis. And I believe it is our responsibility to promote well-being and thriving. How can we make a difference from a population standpoint? Imagine quiet streams that start to gain speed and soon turn into turbulent waters. There's that point of no return when the water cascades down the waterfall. If we think of this public health model, we can help youth early and steer them away from the crisis, get them to shore before falling down. And by moving upstream to improve supports, we allow youth to achieve their full health potential. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. There is no health without mental health, and it's wonderful that we're talking about youth mental health right now. It has always been important, but now it is more important than ever. I would love to leave you with hope that children are resilient, families are resilient, and our community is resilient, especially when we come together to support one another. Thank you all. Thank you, Desiree. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that um, Dr. Shapiro has made enormous strides in promoting um, medical students and residents to um, consider um, child and adolescent psychiatry, and particularly um, students from diverse backgrounds. And there will be, in the coming months, an exciting announcement of a new program that Dr. Shapiro is going to direct. So stay tuned. So I now want to introduce Dr. Susan Tappert. Um, Dr. Tapper is the interim chair of the Department of Psychiatry, and she'll be the interim chair until Jeff comes from Toronto and takes over. Um, she is also the vice chair for academic affairs in the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Tepper is the um, UC San Diego site director for this large research program called the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, or, or ABCD, the largest ever long-term study of brain development and child health in the United States. UC San Diego, um, is coordinating the um, acting as a hub for 21 research sites across the country, which um, are enrolling um, 12,000 children aged nine to 10 to participate in the study. These children will be followed for 10 years um, for the research team to study the unique aspects of brain development in adolescents, but also how risk factors like alcohol, substance abuse, and social stress affect their brains. It's a pleasure to introduce Dr. Tapper. Hello. My name is Susan Tapert. I'm really pleased to be here with you today to talk with you about COVID-19's impact on youth. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UC San Diego, and I do research on adolescent brain development. This is a time of heightened stress for many adolescents during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there are many factors that are leading to kids feeling a bit more stressed right now. And one is that some of the academic expectations are a little bit unclear. Schools had to pivot very quickly to make changes in how grading systems would go. Colleges have changed admission criteria, and this can leave some degree of uncertainty for teens right now. Um, some kids have concerns about the virus themselves, about getting ill or having loved ones get ill. A lot of events have been canceled. So many teens, preteens, and uh, kids have been worried about missing out socially with music and sports events having been canceled. And right now we have a lot of kids who are graduating and they're not able to celebrate graduation in, in the way that we usually do. Um, and this can be very worrisome for parents it can be difficult for parents when their child is in distress. A lot of times parents wanna make it better and sometimes your teen isn't ready to talk. Um, sometimes you're, as a parent, you're telling your teen what you think needs to happen to make them feel better, to relieve their distress. And sometimes this can result in teens kind of blocking their parents out or retreating to online activities as a way of kind of temporarily coping. We have some tips for alleviating adolescent stress that come from other situations in the past that have been stressful for young people. And one is to um, give your preteen and your teen some space. Sometimes they just need a little bit of time to work on things on their own. And when you have time to be together, sometimes humor and laughter and just being kind of silly is a great way to break the ice if your teen is feeling kind of terse or distressed. Physical activity 
is a wonderful thing for us all to do in the pandemic. I'm sure you've heard that from many places and we don't want to force it too hard on our kids. We really want it to kind of come from uh, an internally motivated place. So sometimes creating opportunities for physical activities that are fun and that you can do together uh, can be really nice. Dancing, uh, taking just a walk outside, even if everybody's listening to music together, are just some nice things to spend some time together in a very low stress way. Projects, games, and conversations are another opportunity that parents and teens have to bond together right now when we have more time and kids have relatively flexible schedules right now. A lot of time making it really low key, making sure that as the parent you're not coming in with a high level of expectations uh, can, can really help make it a fun experience. And I think the most important tip for parents right now is to approach being with your teen, but in a way that is calm. As a parent, you're calm, you're not distracted, you're not half doing work and half trying to have a conversation with your teen, but put aside your your stuff and really focus on seeing what your teen is up to. A lot of times they're doing online things and it's great to find out exactly what they're doing online. There's a lot that parents can learn about here. The adolescent brain is developing very rapidly during this phase of our lives, roughly ages 12 through 20 on up to 25. A lot of developmental processes are unfolding at a relatively rapid rate with gray matter changing, white matter developing. This development occurs at different rates in different parts of the brain that are responsible for different functions in human activity. Some of the parts of the brain that are responsible for um, withholding a response or inhibiting a response tend to develop at a slow, steady pace and may not be fully in place by mid-teenage years. Whereas other parts of the brain are really well developed, which is how teens are able to have tremendous insights and to experience a whole range, range of emotions because these parts of the brain are, are developing at a more rapid rate. So this can make some adolescents a little bit more prone to taking risks. It also can help adolescents be a little better set up to adapt to changing situations. So in some ways, our teens may be a guide for us in how to deal with change situations such as living with a pandemic. We are studying many of these things in the ABCD study. This is the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, the largest brain imaging study of child and adolescent brain development. There are 21 research sites around the United States. It's coordinated here at UC San Diego and what we do in ABCD is we've recruited almost 12,000 kids at ages 9 to 10, and then we're following them for 10 years until they're about 20 years of age. We follow them with brain imaging, cognitive testing, mental health assessments. We collect genetics information and a number of forms and questionnaires that ask about culture and environment. We also measure their sleep and their physical activity using a Fitbit activity tracker. We're looking for ways to study biological markers of stress in this study as well. ABCD needed to pivot very quickly when we first started to experience the closures and the pandemic to reduce community transmission for our participants and our research staff. So we quickly adapted our protocol to be able to collect all the information that we can do online via Zoom and telephone conversations and uh, forms that people can fill out easily online. So that's what we've done with our research participants, to keep them engaged in the study and to keep our research moving. We also wanted to study the specific impact of the coronavirus situation on kids in terms of their thoughts and their fears, how the changes in schedules and routine have impacted them and will potentially impact them in the future in terms of their brain development. So we've been sending these brief questionnaires to all the participants in our sample, the 12,000 kids, and also to their parent or guardian, brief questions to ascertain what kind of changes were occurring for their school, for their household, uh, for their other kinds of uh, responses and experiences pertaining to the COVID-19 pandemic. There may be some silver linings in what is a, a very challenging situation. 
There are opportunities for parents to open up deeper conversations with their kids, um, talking about ways of, of coping with healthy strategies to reimagine a better world in many ways, and opportunities for teens to have the chance to learn how to take care of themselves and to learn how to take care of other people. Um, time for relaxing together is something that many teens have reported already is a, a, a perk, a silver lining in this challenging time. Uh, we look forward to starting to scan again soon, this time probably with masks for a few months and appropriate social distancing. Um, but we're hopeful that we will be able to study and learn many things about the impact of this pandemic on children, their brain development, and their outcomes. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Susan. Our final speaker is um, Dr. Um, Sidney Zitter. He is an expert in an area that I um, I personally think is going to be critical, and that's the um, concept of physician burnout. Um, thanks to Denny Sanford, um, we were able to establish the um, T. Denny Sanford Institute for Empathy and Compassion that is studying the neurobiology of um, these traits in order to teach our, our medical students and our physicians how to be more compassionate to both patients and to themselves. Dr. Sidney Zizek is the um, Distinguished Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Healer Education Assessment and Referral Program acronyms HEAR. The HEAR program and the Sanford Institute have partnered during the COVID-19 pandemic to provide additional resources to our frontline healthcare workers at UT San Diego. Dr. Zizek will talk about um, adult mental health and um, how um, we can proactively support our healthcare professionals mental health. Dr. Zizek. Okay, well, we've heard about uh, childhood and adolescent uh, stress and uh, emotional distress, and, and now we turn to adulthood. And clearly, uh, even in adult life, through, through late life, uh, stress, depression, suicide are, are highly prevalent, highly disabling disorders. Uh, indeed, depression is the second leading cause of disability around the world in other mental health conditions, such as alcohol abuse, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, are amongst the top 10. Uh, suicide... Uh, rates are unfortunately and tragically climbing every year uh, in the United States. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the second leading cause of death amongst young adults, the leading cause of death amongst male residents uh, in medical and surgical training is suicide. Uh, so this is something that uh, we really need to attend to, to talk about, and, and to begin to deal with more effectively. Uh, and all that occurred as a backdrop for COVID-19 and the additional unprecedented levels of anxiety, fear, uncertainty, depression, and loss that, that all of us are facing day to day. Uh, and nowhere is the stress of COVID-19 uh, being felt more keenly than amongst frontline workers and particularly amongst doctors and nurses who are there working uh, in very, very stressful environments, exposed to the virus themselves, uh, fear of um, the, what's going on with their coworkers, uh, with their colleagues, their dedication to work and their patients at the same time, fear of bringing the virus home to their family, just unprecedented levels of, of stress and fear. So what can we do? to help uh, mitigate uh, some of this. Well, well certainly staying informed and, and you know, whatever uh, you use for information, uh, the Johns Hopkins website has terrific uh, information, UCSD does as well. Uh, my recommendation would be to limit your media exposure. Uh, CNN junkies are putting themselves in harm's way with a barrage of, of stress and, and bad news all day. Uh, but if you can limit your media exposure to about an hour a day, of something that really is informative that can be particularly helpful. Certainly follow current uh, public health guidelines, uh, such as uh, physical distancing, uh, wearing a mask, washing uh, frequently, uh, and taking whatever steps you can to minimize and address stress, like maintaining normal activities as much as you can, taking walks, doing your exercises, making sure you do at least one enjoyable activity every day, even if you're physically isolating yourself. Um, uh, connecting with friends and family through Zoom, through phone, any ways you can, reaching out to them, 
uh, and, and certainly engaging in, in stress reduction techniques, uh, great programs on, on TV and uh, uh, for yoga, for meditation. Uh, the Sanford Institute here at UCSD is offering free consultation guidelines uh, in regards to mindfulness uh, exercises that I would encourage you to take advantage of and certainly maintain healthy, safe care. Self-care, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I mentioned the untold uh, stress and distress amongst healthcare workers, and that dovetails with an interest of mine, and that is supporting physicians, nurses, and other healthcare workers. Uh, both during the COVID pandemic, and we've increased uh, some of the activities we're doing, I'll get to that in a minute, uh, but, but also even before and certainly after. Uh, and some of the issues that we deal with are burnout. Physician and nurse burnout is rampant. Up to 40 to 50% of physicians feel emotionally exhausted, that they're out of gas, uh, uh, they become cynical, they feel what they're doing isn't, isn't very effective and, or meaningful. Uh, many physicians uh, say they wouldn't do it again or are not recommending medicine for their children, which is such a shame because it's, it's such a a, a wonderful profession, and, and it's a calling. It should continue to be that. Uh, physicians and nurses have rates of depression at least as uh, high as the general population, but our, despite our resources, our good insurance, our knowledge, we're no more likely to get care uh, for depression. In fact, some studies suggest we're less likely to get care. Uh, and that may be one of the reasons that suicide rates continue to climb amongst physicians and nurses uh, in the United States. Uh, and, and in fact, as I mentioned, the second leading cause of death amongst residents in training, uh, and, and the first leading cause amongst male residents is suicide. So what does the HERE program do? The HERE program is something we developed in 2009 to, to try and prevent physician suicide, but also at the same time to increase wellness and engagement uh, and uh, destigmatize uh, mental illness. So we have a, a suicide prevention program uh, that we've instituted, and we also have a caregiver support program. In the context of COVID-19, uh, the caregiver support program has been expanded to where we're now training peer supporters in every clinical service and department in the medical school to reach out to their colleagues and provide uh, empathic communication and emotional support. And so far we've trained over 250 peer supporters. We're really proud of this particular program. Some of our accomplishments, uh, we, um, we've dramatically, it appears to have reduced rates of suicide since the program started. In the um, 11 or so years before here started, there were about 13 uh, deaths by suicide. And this one year might have been a med student, another year a resident, another year a physician or a nurse. Uh, since, uh, in the 11 years since, it's down to two. And, and it, it, I, I dare say not, I shouldn't say only two because every suicide is tragic. And we have lost one medical student and one pharmacy student. But no residents, no faculty members, no nurses uh, since here was instituted. So we, we take that as a mark of success uh, and and we, we really have no idea how many lives we may have saved, but I'm, I'm reminded of a student that I just ran into last year during medical student graduation who stopped me uh, on the way to the uh, graduation and said, you don't remember me, but I'm blah, blah. Uh, and uh, I, I saw you when I was a senior in med school. Um, I uh, was telling you that I was thinking about dropping out of school and just didn't feel like it was worth it. Uh, you met with me several times. Uh, you were very helpful. You were very supportive. You listened to me. You provided hope. Uh, you, you may not remember you referred me for uh, therapy. Uh, I'm still seeing the therapist. Uh, I've now finished uh, my residency. I'm a very successful surgeon. I'm married. I have two children. I love my life. I can't thank you enough. I never told you then but I was at, at, at the throes of killing myself. I, I really thought uh, very seriously of suicide when I first saw you, uh, and, and thank you for giving me my life and, and everything that's followed. And uh, it only takes one story like that to, to make this kind of work very worthwhile. Uh, other accomplishments of, of the HERE program, we've made over 400 referrals to mental health care, 
many of whom were in high distress, at high risk for suicide, and almost all of whom said they otherwise would not have sought mental health care. Uh, we are currently providing over 50 uh, residents, no-cost, uh, confidential, ongoing counseling. Uh, we have, uh, as I mentioned, the peer support program is, is, is burgeoning and full and, and, and growing. Um, we've been named as a best practice for suicide prevention by both the American Medical Association and American Nursing Association, and many other medical centers are now beginning to import aspects of our HERE program into their own programs. So with that, I want to thank you for your attention uh, and uh, to these really important issues. And, and just a reminder that um, together uh, we can do so much. Uh, let's take care of ourselves. Let's take care of our brothers and sisters. Reach out to them. Uh, Destigmatize mental illness. Uh, connect with each other and uh, and, 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 and take care of, of our, our mental as well as our physical needs. We can do it. Thank you. Okay. I want to thank all the speakers for um, doing such a, a great job and for giving us a lot to think about. Um, and now we have time for, um, for questions and answers. Um, young children and social distancing. Um, how do you explain that to them? How do you explain that they're, um, they're not going to uh, see their grandparents in the same way they were seeing them before and um, that things have changed and they, we don't know how long they're going to change or when they can get better? Yeah, that's such a great, such a great question. Um, and starting with grandparents. So grandparents are so special. Uh, the relationship between a grandparent and a grandchild is truly magical and those bonds carry throughout one's life. So. This is hard and hearts are definitely aching. And we know that loneliness is, is not good for our health. Um, the best advice I can give in explaining this is to, to take the time to talk, to listen to what your children already know and let them know why. So why are they not seeing their grandparents or their friends or their teachers or their coaches? Encourage them to um, be a part of the solution. And, and this is sharing that they are being helpers. They are helping keep others safe. Um, they are being health superheroes and they're protecting grandma and papa and others. Um, and really figuring out ways to stay connected virtually. So building grandma and grandpa into the routine as much as possible. Um, maybe there are ways to have a story time every day, um, plant seeds uh, at different houses and see the flowers grow, um, share recipes. So. There are ways to be apart together, and, and we want to foster that and keep the dialogue going. It's a follow-up question. Um, how much do you explain to children? At what point, at what age, I mean, how much do they comprehend about COVID-19 and why their life is turned upside down? Children understand a lot, even, even younger kids. And I, I think the dangerous part is for them to create stories without um, accurate information. So um, being able to hear first, starting with them what they know and, and what they wanna know, as I um, mentioned, is really important. So letting them know that yes, this is, this is an, an illness that the whole globe is, is facing and this is how we're going to protect each other and protect ourselves and move forward. Um, so I think it's good to, to share information because they will make up um, stories in their mind. Some, some youth will think they're responsible or they will get carried away in their mind of, of inaccurate information. The next one is for Susan. Um, everyone's interested in the um, teenage brain. <laughs> so so um, what is this stress going to do to development of teenagers? And, and particularly people have asked about um, your study and it's like, and then, you know, why are you doing this study? All of a sudden, you have a pandemic. I mean, like, how did you expect I mean, how could you account for that in your study? Because you thought you'd have a normal development, a 10-year run of normal development. Yeah, that's a great question. So a, a huge interruption potentially to development here. So we quickly developed, thanks to a little bit of funding from the National Science Foundation and from National Institutes of Health, we were able to um, send some additional measures to our participants that asked them in real time about their experiences, how their school has been altered, how their social life has changed, how relationships are different within family members in the household, so that we can try to characterize this as we're looking at brain development over time. 
it's sort of an unprecedented event and we're glad that we can try to characterize this. Um, the next one, actually, two other names I'm allowed to shout out. Charlene Zettel, for those who don't know, is, our, is the only um, regent to the University of California who's local. <laughs> so we have to take very good care of her. She's been our advocate for many years and a personal friend. And she asked about um, the HEAR program, this is for Sid. Um, and it sounded, she said, um, um, it sounded excellent. Uh, we're sharing this with other UC health systems. Thank you. Uh, yeah, other, other UC systems are uh, now doing parts of it. UC Davis actually published an article. They've replicated several aspects of this program. Uh, I just spoke yesterday with a colleague at UC Irvine, and they're now using what we call this interactive survey program, which proactively uh, surveys people to screen for high distress and, and even suicide risk, and, and then tries to facilitate referrals. Uh, UCLA and UCSF also have some of the components of the HEAR program, including components of the support program that, that we have developed. Uh, I, the, none of the programs have all of the aspects of HEAR. I think we're unique in, in having such a comprehensive program, but it is now being uh, utilized in programs around, not only around the country, but around the world. We've had colleagues visit from Germany and Brazil to learn aspects of this to bring to their homes as well. You. you can tell Susan must be a very good student because she's actually answering the questions online as people are asking. But they're very good answers. I'm going to ask you to say them out loud if you don't mind. Um, so there's one from um, Randolph Kelly, and he says, um, We are implicitly social animals. Social distancing and mandatory lockdowns arise from COVID 19, have limited face to face human to human interaction. What impact has this had on our short and long term mental health, health, especially as it relates to already shy and insecure individuals? Yeah. It's a great question, Randolph. Uh, we really aren't sure because the extent of the, the situation is quite unprecedented, but it's likely that some folks who tend to be in the more shy side might have some difficulty kind of re-emerging and re-engaging, might need to have some kind of gentle encouragement to do so. And some folks might benefit from evidence-based treatment for social anxiety at this time. Can, can I comment on, on that as well? I think I don't particularly like the term social distancing, and we like to replace it with physical distancing, uh, with the idea of, the, of uh, trying to be as socially connected as we possibly can, uh, even in very innovative ways. As we become more and more familiar with our technologies, I think we do need to embrace technologies and have, and have particularly shy individuals embrace technologies. Um, we just completed a very interesting um, research study where we looked at the influence of online therapies for patients with, with severe depression. And actually what we found was, was quite interesting. We found that not only did youth engage in the platform, but it actually helped them engage in treatment. So these online technologies that are, that are now becoming increasingly available, particularly when people are feeling sad or anxious, do help them overcome some of their fears and and uh, allow them to, to to participate more. And I think as we slowly start to re-engage, um, having these kinds of ongoing uh, platforms to be able to to practice or or hone their their social skills will be important for the future. That's a great comment, Jeff. And follow up to that, um, one of the very few silver linings about this whole pandemic has been um, telemedicine. We almost had no telemedicine going into the pandemic, and now it's become a major tool, particularly in psychiatry. So I, I, if any of you have experience with it, you might want to share it with the audience. I've been pleasantly surprised in working with adolescents on the, the radiant patient side in that they, they are used to this technology. Um, they were opening up and, and it's, it's very therapeutic um, and, and it's been seamless. So I'm very grateful for that. Just a, a, a parenthetical aside, I, I understand insurance companies are having a lot of trouble with telemedicine because the no-show rate is uh, almost zero. <laughs> you have to pay for so many more sessions. And, and so a lot of people really like it, uh, and a lot of therapists like it as well. And I love the energy of activation. I, you know, that it's such a big deal to come in and see someone and arrange it and drive. And, and this way you can do something quickly and have an intervention quickly. I'm oh, sorry, Susan, you want to say something? 
Totally agree. It's a, it's a, it could be a long lasting positive change of this difficult situation. I also think that uh, one of the benefits it brings is is that attending appointments on a regular basis, particularly for patients who, who do attend appointments on a regular basis, it can be incredibly disruptive in their lives to make the commute all the way to see the doctor, to wait in the waiting room, and then and then to actually have to return home. And this notion that you can you can press a button, immediately be in your doctor's office, and then immediately disconnect and return to normal living, I think is hugely impactful. And and uh, and it's it's had a it's had a, a really positive impact on our 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 ability to see patients our ability to see patients effectively, as Dr. Sizuk said, um, no-show rates have gone down considerably. And so it's just made the entire health system, I think, a lot more efficient. That's a great point. Um, here's another one for Susan. Um, I find that my teams have adjusted to our new reality. At this point, I'm more concerned about how they will readjust once they need to return to school. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, great question. A lot of the school districts are still kind of working out their plans. We, you know, we think that schools will be uh, held in person to some level in San Diego, but we're not quite sure yet. And it will be a period of readjustment. First of all, sleep schedules. A lot of teens have been taking advantage of sleeping very late. Um, and so they will have to kind of back into that. So I would anticipate a period of readjustment where we need to help um, usher our teens through getting back to that normal schedule. Here's a comment um, from um, Lee Stein, who's also a, a, um, a, an old friend of, um, of UC San Diego. And I, I won't read the whole background, but, but the basic question is, is that with everyone being socially isolated in, um, in different locations throughout the country, a family, you know, extended family, um, what, what, with what kind of um, normal routines can you establish to try to create some sort of structure, even though you're no longer interacting personally with I don't know if Desiree or Susan wanted to that. Yeah, um, I think... Um, the grandparents, grandchildren. Yeah. Um, if you can set up dinners and, and set up the computer and have the face as big as possible to allow for some eye contact where you can have dinner together if that's possible or snacks if there's a time zone difference. Um, definitely playing games, reading books, stories. You can have kids doing um, sort of homework assignments and having grandma and grandpa look something up and then come together for a shared project. Um, so I think that there are lots of different ways to weave grandparents into the routine. And it also may give working parents a bit of a break as well um, to, to designate some time and to allow the, the youth to look forward to that quality time with grandma and grandpa. The, the, thank you. The opposite, though, is a little bit of concern to some people. Uh, are, are we, when we're spending so, so much time online, uh, are we going to like lose our normal social skills when we deal with reality again? Uh, you know, I'm afraid as each month passes, we're getting more and more isolated. I, I agree. Screen time um, is exploding, and maybe Dr. Tapert wants to jump in too. But I saw a survey that um, over a half of American children are spending more than six hours a day in front of the screen. Um, and I know that's a small study, but I think to pause and consider: okay, what are they doing? Are they learning? Are they trying to socialize as best they can? Are they reading? So being behind a screen is not 100% bad, um, but of course we want to encourage time to be outside, to be walking safely, um, to be playing creatively, doing art. Um, we're, we're trying to make the best of the situation that we're in. And of course we'd rather having, have our children at the parks and running around and playing with one another on the schoolyard. Yeah, I'd really echo what Dr. Shapiro said. It depends. There's no uh, escaping that there's more screen time right now for children, teens, for all of us. And I think it is important to consider the, the content of what people are doing online. Teens can uh, keep social with their friends, keep in contact, maintain some amount of social skills by interacting as we're doing now. Um, some teens might kind of dive into stuff that isn't as, as healthy. So it is important that parents keep an eye on what their kids are doing online. Let's say my 10 year old grandson has a 4.30 date every day of the week, seven days uh, a week. Uh, with about four or five of his friends on Zoom for 45 minutes, and they talk. And, and this is a, a boy and, and all of his friends that never talk. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so they are learning some social skills that otherwise may not have been available uh, to them. 
I'll add in, I'm working with a local school and we were talking with the students, the youth advisory group about certain students are very lonely. They're not on a team, they're not in a club, they're not having that connection. And so going into the summer, we're trying to create some virtual spaces uh, where they will play online games and be able to just join a group without being um, necessarily a part of a team or a club. So there are ways, and I think we need to be thinking about this. Um, so this is something, this is a question um, that has occurred to me though also, it, it's that um, with telemedicine, are, are we concerned, I'm actually trying to get data for this, but I don't have yet, that um, low-income communities that do not have access to good Wi-Fi or other things might be um, um, left out and, not, and that we'll get a skewed population that then we would, if otherwise, would be seeking conventional ways. Well, it's a concern, uh, certainly. Uh, the concern is there with or without telemedicine. Uh, you know, those individuals are probably left out of the health stream uh, anyway and may actually have more access uh, to health and mental health care uh, through telemedicine than otherwise. But, but even then, it, as you noticed, it, it still can be a huge problem that we need to do something about. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're trying to get data on it because I haven't seen data. No, me either. Well, I think we can use our own experience to understand what's the, what's the mix of patients we see real time before this and what's the mix of patients we're seeing by telemedicine. I, I do know that, in, that we are seeing people in rural communities now that otherwise uh, we're not getting mental health care and, uh, and, and that's certainly a big plus. Um, Desiree, you also want to comment on this? Um, on the, I just, I'm looking at the Q&A, at the one, oh, no, about, um, one about in, uh, internet access for lower yeah, income communities. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, so um, San Diego County had put out some notices and we really pushed this through to our patient population where certain internet companies were offering free internet for those families who had a student in the home. And then some schools were offering Chromebooks um, to, to lower income students, but it is so important. Internet connection, um, having access to the resources to allow students to thrive and learn and, and relate to others. I think we do have to be very mindful, both in relation to technology that is available, but also um, how sophisticated people are with some of those technologies. We take for granted oftentimes that we can simply navigate and, and click on a, on a um, calendar invitation and immediately get to our next meeting. And a lot of folks aren't familiar with these processes, don't have these as part of their routine activities in their daily lives. And so a lot of education around making sure that people understand how to, how to use technologies and even when they can't use the technologies, even, even something as simple as a phone, I think is, is effective. To, to reach out to people. I was, I had a colleague who, who participated years ago in a, in a fascinating study looking at, at uh, compliance rates and, and a simple text message um, to, to members of a particular community resulted in a considerably, considerable increase in their, in their compliance with medication. So these, even these simple technologies and reaching out is enough to engage and make sure people stay well. We're running out of time. I have a few more questions I'm gonna ask, but we're not gonna get to them all. So what I'm going to promise, <laughs> I'm promising to you guys that, that you'll pick out the questions and answer them directly from the, from the answers so that, so that people can get themselves, even if we don't get to some of them. And some are very personal, so maybe it's more appropriate to do them on. Um, there was a question about sleep, um, Susan, and about, um, there's like this um, schizophrenia, if you excuse expression, the teenagers sleep all the time, but when they're stressed, you know, how does that affect their sleep and how does that affect their that's a good question. So teen in the teenage phase of life, people tend to shift their sleep phase a little bit later. They tend to be more inclined to, to stay up later, to sleep later. Um, stress generally causes less total sleep. So a little bit harder time falling asleep. Um, and for teens waking up in the middle of the night more, sometimes they will gravitate to their phone or other devices at that time, which tends to arouse them more, cause them to be uh, less likely to fall back asleep again. So generally looking at light sources like that or not, not suggested. Um, doing something that is boring is suggested if possible. <laughs> Um, and, and this is um, for Sid. There was just several questions. That, so I'm going to try to summarize in one question about um, that. That when you know, how do you encourage people to seek um, help with mental health? I mean, there seems to be you know still a um, 
you know, a, a feeling that, that that's a sign of weakness or a sign, you know, that, and especially under stressful circumstances like pandemic, how, how can we encourage this? How can we make people um, recognize the issue and get help? Well, that, that's a, a great, great question and, and one that we could probably use several hours to, to try and answer. But uh, to the extent possible, uh, honest, open communication, uh, legitimizing uh, what somebody's saying and feeling, being curious to let them tell their story, uh, help them see in, in some cases that uh, their, their customary modes of behavior adaptations aren't working for them to, to try and help them see uh, the need for help and then showing them the way, the way to get it. Uh, but I, you know, I think education, uh, listening, uh, supporting, unconditional positive regard, uh, not trying to minimize somebody's feelings or explain them away, uh, but, but helping the person express them and express the, the fullest degree of those feelings uh, are ways to go. People often can tell their own stories. If somebody's dealt with depression in their lives and has gotten help, it's enormously supportive to be able to share that with somebody who isn't yet quite ready uh, to admit it or might see it as a sign of weakness uh, uh, to actually admit that they're depressed or to be getting help. And, and we like to try and transform that in, into it's actually courageous and a sign of strength uh, to be able to seek help and, and take care of yourselves. It's a huge problem, even in the medical field, where physicians, nurses, uh, other faculty uh, feel that they need to have a, a sign of strength, which means not admitting uh, to emotional or, or mental issues and not getting help for it. And, and we need to overcome that step by step. But I think education, support, listening, uh, connecting are, are the best tools we have. And then don't give up. Uh, if somebody, um, you know, resists our attempts to get them to seek help for an emotional problem, uh, you know, unless it's an emergency, we can leave them alone for a while, but come back to it. Remain connected. Uh, uh, keep working at it. And uh, eventually those things can pay off. I'd love to echo and um, yeah, just encourage any any parent, grandparent, community member out there um, that if you see a youth in need, you know, we do have services, pediatricians, child and psychiatrists, therapists, psychologists. We we want to be there for you, and we have the resources for for our youth in our community. I personally notice it's not unique to any age group. There's this hesitancy, everyone from from children through adults through elderly. In not seeking help for, um, for mental health. Yeah. I, the last question, I actually know the answer to, so, so, so don't, don't, don't look surprised. Um, could you talk a little more about the Sanford Institute and its goals? Um, so, um, and then the second question was, the professors mentioned some resources, are they open to the public? Um, so the Sanford Institute has two overall goals. One is to study neurocircuitry of compassion, actually study it like any other problem in neurobiology. And the second is to learn how to um, teach it better, how to teach compassion and empathy better. The initial goals are aimed at um, medical students and physicians, but the long-term goal, which is what this question implies, is that um, there is, um, we want to generalize it to make it available. It's been delayed a little bit because of COVID-19. Some of the programs that would have been open to public by now have not been open yet. There is a website, and I think it'd be fantastic if one of the take home messages from this meeting is that there will be resources for the San Diego community and beyond available through um, the generosity of our Debbie Sanford and the Institute. And with that note, I'm going to stop. I want to give Jack, who's in our new chair, if he wants to have any uh, final words of uh, wisdom for us. Um, thank you, um, Dr. Brenner, and, and thank you for everyone for joining. I'm, I'm as I mentioned, earlier, I am very excited about joining um, UCSD um, in the coming few weeks and and work with some of the incredible people that some of whom you, you've met today and and, and really, um, really enthusiastic about about uh, working with the, uh, the San Diego community. Um, a special thanks again to Dr. Brenner for, for leading and facilitating this discussion. I want everyone to remember, most importantly, something that 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 Dr. Taper mentioned earlier, Mental health is health, and we need to focus on mental health as much as possible. And, and despite the COVID pandemic, we need to realize that 
that we need help help people get access to the services that they need. This is particularly true now. A lot of the treatment that is being delivered, as was mentioned, is now being delivered online and it's being delivered very efficiently with with short wait times. So if there are people in crisis, if people in need, we uh, we at UCSD can provide those services in a very timely and effective fashion. I think that uh, we also need to to remember that not all online is bad online. That you can learn a tremendous amount and get people um, to 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 pay attention and 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 do lots of creative things online that will help their their mental health and well-being overall. There have been incredible um, initiatives, um, not only in relation to to learning environments, but also in relation to health and exercise and personal coaching that can all be done online. And I think we all benefit from it, but it's a it's a new norm, and uh, and we're learning a lot as we go along. Um, I thank you all for joining today. It's been my honor and, and pleasure to be here and uh, and welcome and we'll respond to any future questions that you have. Feel free to reach out to all of us. We're here to help. And with that, um, I will thank the participants. I will thank an incredible panel. And um, we will um, have the next one in a month. So, anyway, so thanks everyone. Stay safe and well. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.